Hebrews 7, 11. No slushies to be found at Hebrews 7, 11. This morning we'll be reading 11 through 19. Normally I think about Hebrews as heavy-handed and uh, Matthew as gospel light. Not today. Today Matthew was uh, heavy-handed truth and Hebrews is heavy with grace. So you'll be blessed. Hebrews 7, 11 to 19. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also in the law. I would add a word for clarity. Listen, verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law practiced. I'd add that word. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance to the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal or physical commandment, but after the power of of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and the unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect. But the bringing in of a better hope, did. By the which, we draw nigh unto God. Father, help us today to understand this blessed truth, that by Christ alone, we draw nigh unto you. Thus our prayers are prayed in Jesus' name and our expectations are all righteously connected to your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to be a thinking people this morning that the grace, the marvelous grace that is evident in this passage would be grasped by us and a blessing to us as we seek to prepare ourselves on this first day of a new week to not only believe right, but behave right to your honor and your glory throughout the week. Thank you again for each one that is here to hear. Bless your people. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Cycle the die. Shop talk. Throw the lines. Ship talk. Kick the PAT. Sports talk. Every field of study, work, and activity has some distinctive vocabulary, jargon, and nomenclature. I remember memorizing the military's NATO phonetic alphabet back in the year 2000 so as to better be able to communicate with the Coasties, of whom my son had become a part after joining the USCG, United States Coast Guard. Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Echo. That's how it goes. When you listen to people talk that possess similarity of experience in vocabulary, jargon, and nomenclature, it's easy uh, to be the odd man out. I used to introduce myself all over this nation as the son of a two-and-die maker because my dad spent 43 years with General Motors as a two-and-die man. He now lives across the street from a guy that is a tool man. When my dad talks to the neighbor, I only understand a little bit of what they're talking about, but they're so animated. They're so into it. It's so enthusiastic. And the things they say, I don't know. I don't really care. But nonetheless, it's tool talk. Every field of study, every field of work, every field of activity, including sports, has its own nomenclature. Most of you know that when truckers speak of dropping the hammer, no hammer is actually dropped. I would alert you once again that the things said of God to the Hebrew people in our text have a vocabulary. They have a jargon. They have a nomenclature. I would describe that nomenclature, that vocabulary, that jargon, as first and foremost Hebrew or Jewish, and in this section, Levitical priesthood. Today, the rationale is a little hard to grasp apart from some sense of understanding concerning the Old Testament ritual under the law for priests. And that's going to remain a truth for the rest of chapter 7 and all of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10. When the writer to the Hebrews says, verse 14, for it is evident that the Lord was of the tribe of Judah and that no member of that tribe ever served as a priest under the Old Testament law, it is easily evident or clear to, I believe, all of us. Okay, got it. The Lord Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. Judah never stood before uh, the law as priest. But when the writer goes further on to say, verse 15, and it is yet far more evident or clear, and then he references Melchizedek and the logic of another priest, I'm afraid it's not all that clear at all. In other words, in this case, when the Bible says it's evident, it is evident to me when I read it. When the Bible says it's far more evident, it's like, ah, I'm not so sure that it's all that evident to me. And in fact, only by study... Do we show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth? And then it's like, oh yeah, okay, I got it. But my work is today to get it so that I can help you get it, so that today we can rejoice in it 
as it relates to our hope and the grace of God that is evident in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there is in this section a matter of propositional logic that flows throughout this text that we must get our minds around. It is the logic proposed for the Jewish mind. It is logic directed towards those who possess a strong allegiance to the Hebrew scriptures, Genesis to Malachi. It is a logic uh, that involves a, uh, a, a precise sense of engagement uh, of words that point us in a direction that assumes that we have some understanding of not only the Old Testament storyline, but some of the unique ramifications of the ritualistic law. Nonetheless, it is not difficult to figure out exactly where this passage goes as to its point, and for that I call your attention to verse 19. The precise word combination translated bringing in is not found elsewhere in the New Testament, but it carries the idea of something or someone replaced by a a superior thing or person. The Lord is the superior person to the law, a thing. The Lord is the superior replacement of the law when it comes to the truth of drawing near to God. The law was given so that the people of faith in the Old Testament could draw near to God. But that system of drawing near to God under the law is now done. And the truth of this text is, is that the spiritual old icebox has been replaced by the refrigerator. Now, there are only a handful of people in this congregation that understand exactly what I just said. But what I said was, is that the icebox has now been replaced by the refrigerator. And for generations of people, and especially those that are young in this congregation, there would be no understanding whatsoever by that reference of icebox to refrigerator. But nonetheless, the law is like the icebox, and Christ is like the refrigerator. Our text then helps us to understand the contrast between the effectiveness of the law of God given to Moses verse 12, and the effectiveness of the Lord, verse 13, of whom these things are spoken. And the basic point that is going to be made is the law was, by and large, ineffective. And the Lord is completely effective. So the basic idea that drives this section of Hebrews 7, and will continue to be the drive of chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, is the idea that under the law you have a shadowing of what's to come, but by no means a substance. And now you and I are told that we are to, we are to appreciate the shadow as being the shadow, but you and I are to latch on to the substance, which is Jesus Christ. So it's a Lord law contrast, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, And we also understand that this text continues to address the matter of spiritual perfection or spiritual maturity uh, that has been uh, the theme since chapter 6 and verse 1, in which you have that, that 
imperative, let us go on to perfection. The logic here in verse 11, 711, where no slushies are to be found, uh, is uh, uh, that that this passage works to instruct us regarding personal salvation. But it also, and really in the context, it is primarily directed towards our understanding that the law has a very ineffective uh, sense of value in regards to personal sanctification. Now, most Baptists would readily recognize that the law plays no effective role regarding salvation, but many Baptists do not have the grasp of understanding that the law plays no role in regards to effective sanctification. The Old Testament law never saved anyone. All Baptists would say amen to that. Paul said, no man is justified uh, by the law in the sight of God. He said that to the Galatians. And as Paul taught the Romans, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work to bring forth fruit unto death. How effective was the law in getting it done? It wasn't effective. Or if you want to say it was effective, it was only effective to kill you. It wasn't effective to give you life. It wasn't effective to sustain life once given. The law never saved anyone, nor did the law ever provide power to live a life of righteousness before God. And so, in the text before us, we have already in the seventh chapter summarized Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 uh, by Romans 8, 3, and 4, but I'll do it again just by quick reading, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be lived or fulfilled in us. We also understand that this text conforms uh, the the reality of of the Levitical ritual, the priesthood, the system uh, under the law itself, uh, that was determined by God as a foreshadowing, determined by God in eternity past to always be a temporary and incomplete thing. Let me say that again. In the master plan of God for the ages, the law was never intended to save anybody. Neither was the law ever intended to give anybody the power to live a life of righteousness before God. And that's why we preach not the hope of the biblical law, but we preach the hope of our blessed Lord. Our hope is in the Lord. Now, with that basic overview of, uh, of uh, presentation concerning the verses that we've, we've seen here and read this morning, uh, we want to consider three more truths uh, from the flow and logic of the passage uh, that we would like to develop for our mutual understanding and application concerning the grace of God. We begin with the dynamic of Christ in verses 16 and 17. We will then work with the disannulment of the law, verse 18. And finally, the drawing near to God, verse 19. We start with the dynamic of Christ is seen and talked about in verses 16 and 17. Uh, Who is made, speaking of Christ, who is made not after the law of a physical or carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. 
we could say, resurrected life, a forever life. And then the connection, verse 17, for he that testifieth, the he there would be God. More specifically, the he there would be the Spirit of God, because the Bible is Spirit-given, and it is also Spirit-understood. And so we understand the he of verse 17 to be direct reference to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in giving the scriptures that say, Hebrew, I'm sorry, Psalm 110, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the dynamic of Christ is seen in the fact of his physical descent from Judah and kingly promise to David. And and, and the dynamic of Christ is seen in the lack of priestly descent and connection to Melchizedek. What did I just say? I said, in the study of Matthew, our number one, the descent of Christ of the tribe of Judah in connection to David helps us to appreciate who he is. Here in Hebrews 7, the no descent recorded concerning Melchizedek, the no law of record concerning Melchizedek, and the fact that Christ is a priest after that order of priesthood is the logic of God to convince us of the glories of our Savior. So God uses descent and God uses no descent. He uses descent logic to help us understand Christ in relationship to king. He uses no descent logic to help us to understand the relationship of Jesus Christ to capital P priest. Now, I got to tell you something. I don't do that kind of thing. That, on the surface, would appear to me to be quite confusing. But nonetheless, that's exactly what God did. And he's not the author of confusion. But this is what is going to help us to get from that which is far evident. Remember, it is very evident, said uh, verse uh, uh, 13, I'm sorry, 14, uh, that the Lord sprang out of Judah. Very evident that there is a a descent, uh, a genealogy to follow that adds up to the kinghood of Jesus Christ forever as you and I grasp it in the pages of Scripture. But now, verse 15, there's something far more evident, and we already said it's really not so evident at all until you study it. And what's evident is not built upon a human, bodily, physical genealogy, so says verse 16, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment. But the logic that connects to the power of a forever life Jesus, forever yesterday, today, and forever. God, the same. He wasn't always Jesus. He was always God, the Son. So we deal and are confronting, first and foremost, the dynamic of Christ is seen in the fact of his physical descent from Judah and kingly promise to David and and the lack of priestly descent and connection to Melchizedek. On the one hand, we celebrate the Lord Jesus, as the one who has genealogical right to the Davidic throne, 
And, on the other hand, we celebrate the fact that the Lord's priesthood is of the order of Melchizedek without genealogical right to the Levitical priesthood. You with me? The Lord's dynamic is declared by genealogy and the lack thereof. His entitlement is king by genealogy. His entitlement is high priest without genealogy. It's not only a fact, it happens to be God's point. And it underscores the dynamic of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This recognition, Hebrews 7, also sheds light upon the uh, error of old King Saul when intruding into the office of the priest as recorded in 1 Samuel and it underscores the era of Uzziah when going into the temple to burn incense as recorded in 2 Chronicles. Saul, King Saul, for his sin was removed as king Uzziah, for his sin, was afflicted with leprosy. God drew a line between the offices, Old Testament, of king and priest. And they never came together, except they came together in a man, by means of foreshadowing, before God gave the law, and that man's name was Melchizedek. And that man better foreshadows what we ultimately come to understand is true in Christ than any of the Old Testament priesthood. That's a powerful thing to realize, how the dynamic of Christ is forwarded by his connection to the order of High Priest Melchizedek. Well, the second thing I call your attention to is the disannulment of the law as it's declared in verse 18. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before. And then it says, for weakness and unprofitability or unprofitableness thereof. Now what it says in verse 18 is what caused me back in verse 12 to add a word. Now I'm not adding to the Bible. I'm just adding a word for the sake of clarity. And back in verse 12 it says, For the priesthood being changed. How's it been changed? Well, it's changed from being all wrapped up in the Levitical priesthood under Aaron, and now everything Godward is wrapped up in the priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek. It's been changed. And therefore, there is made of necessity a change also of the law, the law practiced, meaning that the law, as practiced in the Old Testament, is icebox. And Christ is refrigerator. And then once you have a refrigerator, you don't need an icebox. You don't want an icebox. And you certainly don't need some guy coming around with a horse and a cart to bring you ice that they cut out of the Saginaw River and stored in a building with sawdust until the summer day you needed to keep your milk cool so that it wouldn't spoil, Grandma Teal. The Lord is like the refrigerator. He's the better thing, the better hope, 
in which you and I have connected with the grace of God. The disannulment of the law is declared, verse 18, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for our sins ended the Levitical priesthood and the requirement of animal sacrifices in anticipation of God's promise fulfilled. The disannulment speaks of a dynamic setting aside, a putting away, a rendering inoperative as to the practice of the law. You see, the law is still good. The law is still right. The law is still holy, so says Paul in Romans 7. The law isn't bad. Never was, can't be. It's perfect. Came from God. But the practice of the law is now icebox, done with. Because Christ has rendered the law operationally dead, done, over. The computer tech this week was able to get my old family pictures off my first hard drive and handed to me a flash drive along with the hard drive or brains of my old computer. He told me how to destroy the hard drive so as to protect the files on it from falling into the wrong hands. He told me that many people use their hard drives for target practice. He told me that hard drives can be rendered inoperative by means of high-powered rifle. So let me just say that my old hard drive has now been rendered inoperative. The highest power, Christ, has rendered the law inoperable. Icebox has been replaced by the refrigerator. We know that the Old Testament law of God, given to and through Moses, was intrinsically good, holy, and righteous, yet verse 18 describes the law as weak, number one, weak, number two, unprofitable. And it describes the law as weak and unprofitable by God's own design. I told you my dad was a tool man, and one of the principles of a tool man that I was raised with is uh, select your tool and use it for which it was made. Select your tool and use it for which it was made. If you came uh, to a project and my dad walked into the garage when you were pounding in a small nail with the butt end of a screwdriver, my dad would have something to say to you. My dad would say, select the right tool and use the tool for which it was made. That's what my dad would say. That's what my dad would say. And one of the things that we get confused about is because we always insist upon the fact that whatever God made is perfect and whatever God made is perfect, uh, we, we forget that sometimes God made things perfectly that had a purpose that was purposely in a, uh, to be weak and unprofitable in a particular kind of a way. And therefore, I, a lot of people, especially Baptist people, are confused concerning the fact of how the law works in relationship to a believer's life because some people think that the law is just no good at all, and that would be wrong. The Bible says it's good, it's holy, and it's just. And some people have the idea that you ought to just follow the law like there's some Jewish priest that's leading your house. And the reality is, the fact is, we don't wear collars around here, if you know what I mean. And I mean dog or priestly collars. The law was never intended by God to do what only God could do. The law was never intended to do what only the cross would do. The law could and can tell of God's righteous expectation. 
The law could and can convict people of their sinfulness. The law cannot and could not ever enable a person to live right before God or make a person spiritually whole. Christ has put away the law, not because it was a bad thing. He put away the law because his offering of salvation and sanctification as a result of the one-time sacrifice on the cross is the actual way that a person can indeed draw close to God. That brings us to number three in our outline, the drawing. The drawing near to God through Christ is declared in verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, nothing mature, nothing to its appointed end. But the bringing in of a better hope did. By the which, that better hope brought in, we do draw nigh unto God. The drawing near to God through Christ is declared in verse 19. Our Lord Jesus is the better hope of 719 as he was previously identified as the anchor-like hope of the soul back in chapter 6 in verse 19. While the truth of Christ is our righteous hope has many facets of application, the point here is that he is the hope of our spiritual growth and maturity onto grown-up relationship with the Almighty. Now, a number of you missed the first hour this morning, and you missed a heavy-handed sermon in truth that was particularly rough on anybody who was a dad and a husband. But in this hour, I would likewise address the dads and the husbands and say to you, God, by his grace, has offered us a balance this Sunday, the heavy hand and a kick in the pants in hour number one, followed by the grace of Jesus Christ in hour number two. How in the world are you as a man going to stand tall for God in this world? Answer, the Christ way. You can do it, sir. You can do it, sir. The Christ way. There is no other way of salvation. There is no other way of sanctification. He that hath begun a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And all the husbands and fathers say, that wasn't very strong, but I'll take it. Our number one, a kick in the pants if you're a man. Our number two, the sweet salve of the Spirit as seen in Jesus Christ. You, sir, are not alone in your walk with the Lord. And God with one can put 10,000 to flight. And so why should you fear to be a man for God when Christ is the captain of your soul? I hope you feel as good now as you felt bad in the first hour if you were here. That's the way it played out in my own soul as I prepared. I thought it might be that way for you. While the truth of Christ is our righteous hope has many facets of application. Again, the point here 
is that he is the hope of our spiritual growth. He is the hope of our advance. He is the hope of our maturity. He is the hope of our, our designated or appointed end. Sherry and I have often said in ministry that one of the unique aspects of ministry is that there is a wall between uh, uh, the minister and the people in such a way that the people seldom get to know, really, the minister, nor should they. And yet I can tell you that this minister is not always going to be. There's a day when I'll be better. Because God is guaranteed that this minister is going to be absolutely 100%. 100% as appointed by God in eternity past when God brought me to mind before he ever made a blade of grass. And what's true of me is true of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the guarantee of your growth and stability in relationship to the appointment of God for you in eternity future. Trust him, walk with him, depend upon him. He will get us there. On the basis of your relationship with Jesus Christ, you can, right now, today, draw nigh unto God. Or, as James says it, draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. In Christ, we have unrestricted access to the throne of God. God. For in Christ, Jews and Gentiles both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. And so there's something that I know about you as a believer. And what I know is this you can. Draw nigh to God. Of course, I would say you should. But seriously now, why would you not want to? Why would you not want to draw nigh to God? Knowing that because of Jesus Christ, he will draw nigh to God. Father, it's been an interesting day. First hour was a kick in the pants. This second hour really is like a heavenly hug. Help us then to embrace all that is in the scripture concerning the grace and truth of God. The fullness of that grace and truth as found in God the Son and the availability of that grace and truth for us right here, right now, during these days of life. It commends the logic of which we've been singing, that our talk and our thinking ought to be all about the Lord Jesus. Oh God, how we thank you for him, who is your Son, our Savior. And we pray that you would encourage the hearts of your people who are on the try 
For we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.